welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we're approaching th- we're approaching Halloween. Yeah, we're going to be approaching Thanksgiving too, and <laughs> not so far. But right now, right now it's still middle October, and we're approaching uh, Halloween. And Halloween makes us think of things like skeletons and ghosts, and those make us think of death. We may be uh, not consciously thinking of that or not consciously connecting it to that, but certainly unconsciously we are. So I thought today's show would be perfect for the run-up to Halloween. It is um, Memoirs of an Undertaker's Daughter. Yes, there is an Undertaker's Daughter who is my guest. Her name is Margot Lindmark. And she wrote a book called Light in the Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Memoirs of an Undertaker's Daughter. Now, did you ever wonder what it would be like to grow up in a funeral home as an undertaker's daughter? Well, you're about to find out. But, you know, when you think about that, certainly when I thought about that, I thought about, oh, God, um, how, how traumatic and how dreary, and um, what kind of person, how do you, it must be really hard to um, form a happy life after that. Well, if that's true, uh, Margot is certainly the exception to that rule, because her life has taken a total 180 from what things must have been like for her as a little girl, because she is celebrating life. And in fact, you know, that is the, that's the flip side of it. I mean, that's like when kids uh, go through all kinds of trauma uh, and, you know, not necessarily having anything to do with living um, in a funeral home, but just trauma. Either children can become much more um, vulnerable to future traumas or some kids... Uh, fly in the face of this and have it let them become stronger. It makes them stronger. So I, that's where I think Margot falls, and we're going to be hearing all about it as I welcome her to the show. So welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here on your couch. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And of course, as you know, all people do when they get on the couch, um, I am really um, very interested in, and I'm sure my listeners are too, very interested in knowing what that was like for you. So let's start with, you know, birth or early childhood or your first memory. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I grew up certainly around the funeral home constantly. We, we did not grow up in it. You know, a lot of people have homes in the funeral home. We didn't. But, um, you know, we'd go there after school to meet my dad to get rides home. My friends would come with me and get rides home from school. And the church was right across the street. And so we'd go to church and then go to the funeral home and hang around. And <laughs> so... Yeah, I would say I was really around the funeral home a lot. It was it was a daily part of my life. And because of that, it was very natural to me. 
Of course it was. I, you know, probably when I was a baby, they brought me into that funeral home. I don't quite remember that, but I do remember being very young. I have three brothers, and we'd always run around and play hide-and-seek under the caskets and upstairs in the showroom, not under caskets where people were. But, um, but we were also downstairs, you know, near the embalming room, and we kind of hung out down there, too. So... I know it sounds really morbid, but I guess when you grow up with it, you feel really natural around it. So I think what it developed in me was an ease about death. I was around it constantly. There were, you know, always dead bodies in the funeral home, and we walked amongst those (laughs) rooms and the caskets and everything. And um, it made me feel very comfortable, I guess, with the idea of death. So well, death probably what, what has state, a different... Wait, what pardon? state was this in? What state this was did in you Wisconsin. live in? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And um, what did your... As you were little and, you know, in your first experiences in the funeral home, what did your parents tell you? Like, you know, did you, you would... You must have asked questions about these bodies. What, how, did they, how did they explain it to you? Well, they they explained it pretty matter-of-factly, you know. Um, my dad used to ask if we wanted to watch him embalm. I didn't really want to, so I, I kind of did. I'd walk by and watch a little bit, but not much. Um, my mother fixed the hair, and so she'd ask me if I wanted to go in and watch her fix hair, and I did a couple times. I mean, probably many times. I, you know, I don't have a whole bunch of specific memories of that, but I do remember watching my mother do that. And um, they were really very matter-of-fact about it. I can tell you that my father is probably the most compassionate man I have ever known. And so he was so soft-spoken and so respectful. So Mm -hmm. he really developed in us a great respect for, for both the deceased and people who were around you know, you know, people who are grieving the deceased. Yes, I mean, that, that was a big part of it, too, I would imagine. It's not just about seeing the dead bodies and seeing your parents work on them and try to make them look good, you know, especially if it was an open casket and all that. But, but then seeing all those crying people, how did you deal with that? I didn't have to deal with that much. I, I pretty much stayed away. My My father dealt with that, and my father... I talk about him in the book so much because of that quality, and people knew him for that quality, and I think that's what made him such a a beautiful funeral director is that Mm -hmm. he somehow was able to um, take their grief and help help them with it in a way that made it bearable for them. And I I know, I I remember people leaving the funeral home and just hugging my father and thanking him. And you could feel they were lighter hearted when they left. They felt better after speaking to my, to my father. He was, he was really quite the wonderful man to be around if someone had died. And, um, was he, was he, was this a business that he inherited from his family or how did, how did this start? Yes. Yeah, his his father was a funeral director, and his his father his father was a had a furniture store, which then started making caskets, and then that was given to huh. my dad's father, and then my father's uh, my grandfather gave it to my father on his deathbed, actually. So my my father went to mortuary school and took over the the funeral business, hmm. and it's still there today. 
Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, and are your brothers older than you or younger than you, or how, how, did they, how, were, I, how were they dealing with all had, of this? I had two older brothers and one younger, and my older brothers would always play tricks on my girlfriends when they came into the funeral home. <laughs> oh, my God. It was, I mean, it was really, um, you know, I remember one time um, I was getting on the elevator. I was downstairs and with my girlfriend. We were getting a ride home from school, and we were... We pushed the button for the elevator, and we, the elevator door opened, and there was a gurney on it with a body on it with a sheet over it. And my girlfriend was just scared to death and just shaking and almost crying. And I told her, you know, it's okay. The body's dead. It, we'll just stand right over here, and we're fine. I promise you, we're fine. So, you know, we go onto the elevator, and she's just, you know, slammed up against the corner of the elevator trying to stay as far away from the body and when we got upstairs and the elevator stopped just as the door was opening the body sat up (laughs) it was my brother and my girlfriend I will never forget it she just ran screaming and oh my god my father had to run out and tell her boys to be boys and and hold her and try to get her normal but I don't know if she ever came in the funeral home again it was pretty bad. <laughs> so I grew up with that. <laughs> um, they yeah. had a good sense of humor. Yeah. What, yeah, right, um, exactly. What did they become? What kind of work do they do? Did they take um, over my the brother, My oldest brother went into um, videography in L.A., and he, huh. he did a lot of infomercials and all, and he's no longer alive. He's in the book, and he's the reason I wrote the book. Um hmm. My other brother became an x-ray technician and then started a business with, uh, you know, bringing ultrasound machines around to hospitals in northern Wisconsin that couldn't, um, you know, couldn't afford the machines. So neither one of them went into the funeral business at all, and my younger brother didn't either. They all just went in different ways. Huh. They weren't, they weren't um, interested in pursuing it. Well, I mean, I guess x-ray is kind of sort of related, bodies, looking through the bodies, you know. <laughs> what did your younger brother bones. do? <laughs> what? Bones. Me. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Skeletons. Yeah. Um, what did your younger brother do? Um, he, he indexes books, so that really has nothing to do with it either. <laughs> nobody, huh. nobody really followed the field at all. It was only me in a sense. I, I didn't in that way, but, you know, just writing the book about it because I, I had some experiences, quite a few experiences when people close to me died, including my father and including my mother and my older brother. Um, when people died, they left me very clear messages about life. And so I'm the only one that sort of followed the family tradition, but in a totally mm-hmm. different way, probably uh-huh. an unexpected way, by writing the book. Hmm. Um, well, there's so much. Did you ever, talking about, you know, that, that prank that your brother uh, did, did you, there are, of course, as obviously you know, um, there are, there have been various stories around the world of um, people thinking that someone is dead and then actually they do come back to life because, uh, oh, for various reasons, um, you know, they weren't really dead in the first place. <laughs> it was just they were misdiagnosed right. as dead. Um, did, right. that ever, did you ever see anything like that? 
No, I, I didn't. And, <laughs> you know, I think that's what my friend thought when my brother sat up because she had no idea that was my brother under the sheet. And right. so she probably thought that. But, um, no, I have heard, you know, quite a few experiences of near-death experiences and people come back to write about it. And I think it's fascinating, don't you? I just think it's incredible well, when... Yes, yes. But I mean, even uh, yes, absolutely. But I, I mean, um, even just the physical part of it. Like, um, oh, I I haven't heard of one recently. But like, there would be somebody who would be put in a. You must have heard somebody put in a, um, like, in the freezer of a morgue, and then they open up the freezer, and um, the person was never dead, and um, had been uh, by freezing. It had kind of kept them in that state, and then. And then they sort of came alive, as it were. Do you know what I'm talking wow. about? I, and yes, some yeah, of I do know what write. you're talking about. It, yeah, if my father were alive, I'd ask him if anything like that ever happened. I never heard about that, at least in our funeral home. And I've never heard of anybody, you know, we had friends, you know, a lot of funeral home friends. And I've never heard anybody tell that story. But mm-hmm. that would be just incredible. That would just, mm-hmm. I've also heard of body bags, you know, people in, you know, in Vietnam and different wars who are alive today to tell about their experience of how they're zipped up into a body bag. Yes, and, yes. But they weren't dead. Yeah, so I, I that's fascinating. That's yes, incredible, that's exactly I think. that's what I mean, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, how do you think, though, as a child, I mean, first of all, did other kids... Um, I know it was probably not as bad in Wisconsin as maybe it is in some other places, but um, were, did kids ever ever tease you, or were they scared of you, or your brothers maybe less you of because you're a girl? But you know, what kind of reactions did you get from other kids when you were in school? You know, I don't really remember any of that. I don't think I did. And I think it's because it was so normal to us. It was just like everyday life to us that we didn't make it feel um, unnormal or unnatural. So I, I don't I don't remember anybody ever teasing me or anything. People made jokes about dying to get into the funeral home and things like that, you know. But yeah. But other than funeral home jokes, I don't remember anybody like being, I don't think anybody was afraid of me or anything. And um, I don't remember even really talking about it much to my friends. It was just so natural. And so I think it says a lot by, about how you grow up, you know. Um, if you feel okay about it, I think everybody else does too. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't um, have any of those weird experiences from friends or anything. What about, um, I mean, it's just kind of, I understand what you're saying, that your parents obviously really helped to make you feel that way, but what about, like, I know I, I want to talk about how the, the people who you love died and how that gave you, I mean, that's basically what you learned. I mean, you learned from both your experience as a child in the, in the funeral home and also from these people dying and their messages. Um, and we're going to talk about that. But um, what about even not like loved ones, but just people in the town or classmates or somebody who committed suicide or, you know, people who would, I'm assuming it was a relatively small town. Is that right? Yeah, it's about 40,000, maybe 30 when we were growing up, 35, something like that. Uh-huh. So did, I mean, how was that? Like seeing people not who were loved ones per se, but just, just people in the town who you knew and uh, like seeing all these people, 
all these people dying. Did did that mm-hmm. really not have any? Um, I don't know. I, I I that you that had no. Did were there ever was there ever a, a a friend a childhood friend who died that you saw come through? That's sort of an. A, Yes, yes, there was a childhood friend in the neighborhood that died, and I we were absolutely, obviously devastated. Um, I, I remember um, trying to help people with their grief as I was grieving. You know, I, I just have this really clear memory of sitting with people, holding their hands, crying, and, I, and I, I felt like I kind of maybe had a role to do that because I was more familiar with it than they were, mm-hmm. um, but no, we, we went through some some deaths, and it, it was really tragic and really sad, and um, yeah. And, and I mean, the thing that I would community. think would be a little, a little different if it was like a, a neighborhood friend, uh, you know, would be that you would relate more to that person, identify more with that person. And that would mm-hmm. be seeing death in a different way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, it, yeah, because it, I saw a lot of death that had nothing to do with me. Most of it in the funeral had not, the funeral home had nothing to do with me. Right. And so as death came closer to me, like with this neighborhood friend, um, and it was just a tragic accident. He fell off a, a hay wagon, and the wagon rolled over him, and it killed him. Mm-hmm. And it was so sad. I mean, our, our whole neighborhood was just in grief um, collectively. And... Um, but I do remember, I remember walking around to people and holding hands and hugging them and crying with them. Um, I, was, I was never one to not go be with somebody when they were crying. I always outreached to people. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because I felt more comfortable with it or not. I was just as sad as they were. But um, I, I felt the um, importance of community when people grieve. And I felt there was a really important to grieve and not, not kind of go off by yourself. I mean, I mm-hmm. know people have to go off by themselves. I mean, grieving has all these different, different levels to it. But I, I remember trying to pull people together at that time to all be together at that really important sad mm-hmm. time. Mhm, mhm. Well, this is a perfect place um, to take a break. Uh, we <laughs> remember my guest book is called Light, L I G H T, Light in the Morning, M O U R N I N G. This is not going to all be uh, <laughs> not going to all be grief. We're going to be talking about all of these, and by her life, um, Margot Lenmark has shown that. Um, uh, how important it is to turn toward life. Um, so we'll be talking about that, too, when we come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? 
Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't write yourself off yet. Dr. Carol's Couch, I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, we're talking today about Light in the Morning, Memoirs of an Undertaker's Daughter, with the Undertaker's Daughter, whose name is Margot Lenmark. Fascinating lady. Um, I was asking her during the break how old she was when she left, and it was when she went to college, so she was there at the funeral home, uh, you know, her whole childhood, until she was 18, and... um, and I, well, the point that I had been trying to make before was about how, you know, presumably most of the people who were um, cadavers, and by the way, you know, when I went to medical school, um, we had to, in order to study anatomy, we had to um, work on cadavers. So I am not, you know, this is not unfamiliar to me. And I used to bring my lunch, which you probably did too, I would imagine, because you used to eat in the funeral home. <laughs> I mean, yes, you know, all the time. we had to spend long hours in the lab dissecting these cadavers, and I got hungry. <laughs> that's, that's hard work, so you have to eat. Um, so you do kind of get, you know, not to be disrespectful, but um, you do kind of get used to uh, and they they were very, um, you know, they made a big point about being respectful to the cadavers and all of that. Um, but I was starting to say, <laughs> just so you know where I'm coming from, it's not like this is, you know, totally uh, something that I don't understand. But um, but I was, when I was asking for about about a friend dying, because most of the people um, in the in funeral homes in general are older. And so when I was asking uh, Margot about, her friend, you know, and how that was, um, my point was I was thinking, you know, did she in fact identify with that person and realize, uh uh-oh, death is something that could happen to me too as a kid. And then why don't you go ahead with the story that you started on about when you got to college and a friend died? Yeah, okay. So um, 
Yes, when people around me started to die, um, I had a totally different experience, of course, because now you're dealing with this personal loss and grief, which is a totally different experience than seeing, uh, you know, dead bodies around the funeral home of people you don't even know. It's kind of mm-hmm. almost meaningless to you in a sense. So, yeah, what happened in college, um, my boyfriend died in a car accident suddenly, and mm-hmm. when he died, I, I... I crushed. I really had a difficult time with that, and it actually changed my life in a very big way because I felt like I wanted to be like Thoreau and sit by the stream until and watch the water until I figured out the meaning of life and death. I had mm-hmm. to really find out a deeper meaning about life and death when he died. And, um, you know, I started going to churches. I started uh, practicing meditation. I started talking to people about theosophy. I, I just really, really started searching, reading books, you name it. And I, I went on a soul search, and um, and I came out of that pretty well. <laughs> um, it, t- it took a while, but after a lot of searching, I realized something about death that I didn't know before. And what I realized was that life goes on. And I realized it because um, it was really interesting. At his funeral, he I mean, he, he's what... 19 or 20 we were young we were kids and at his he was very popular in our hometown and um at his funeral everybody was coming up to me for support and you know just falling into my arms and I found myself really knowing something (laughs) I knew that he wasn't dead I knew I could feel him with me it was really interesting and I looked at his face in the casket I thought that's not him he's not even there Mm. Mm. and at the you know it was such an interesting experience that I had and it changed me it made me really realize um in in that life goes on, that you don't die when you die the body dies but something lives on and that was a big turning point for me in my life. And did you, um, after the funeral, did you have experiences where you felt that it was him communicating with you? Yes, yes, for sure. And in fact, I remember my brother once telling me, they said, Margo, he, he said, it, it feels like Brian is just talking through you. And I said, he is kind of. I mean, I, 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 I can feel him. And I really could feel him um, for quite a while. And then I remember one time I woke up and he was gone. I couldn't feel him anymore. Hmm. And I, you know, I think that's when I, that's when I really crashed and really um, then started seeking answers. That's when I wanted Uh to find out the answer to life and death, you know? Uh, And I did. I, I, I I really read a lot and I really found out a lot and I, I felt pretty satisfied um, and, but the main thing for me at that point is I started Transcendental Meditation. And when I started meditation, it really started releasing that deep grief inside of me about from losing him. And once that grief, it, it took a while, but once that grief was released, I felt really free inside. And I, I actually said to somebody, I feel like Ryan did for me what Christ did for all mankind. He set me free. And... Mm. So I, I looked at death differently, very differently now, having experienced it very deeply myself and to somebody very close to me. 
So set you free in what way? Like to another to realize that life that that there really isn't a death that that life does go on. Yes, yes, it's a big realization. We don't yes. really know that, you know. And I didn't know that from growing up. Seeing all those mm-hmm. dead bodies didn't tell me anything. I just was comfortable uh-huh. about being around them, you know. But then when when my he was actually my boyfriend became my fiance, and when, once he died. That really ripped my heart out, and I, I had to I had to sink with that grief and find answers, <laughs> and I did. Uh huh. Have you um, been married since then? I mean, have you been married? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you weren't married. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, I mean, did that experience um, at first, at least, make you feel afraid of uh, being in, so in love with someone because of the fact that they could die? No, that's a really good question. You know, it, it, it didn't, but it did do this. It did do something that you said, and, and that is that it makes you very aware that this person that you're with could die. Now I'm very aware. You know, I feel like death kind of sits on my shoulder as a reminder that that person that I'm with right now could die. This person could leave me any moment. And so what it has done for me is it makes me really appreciate the person I'm with while I'm with them. Uh So so that is a huge gift. And I live my life differently because of that. I live my life with that knowing. And that's, that's really something if you think about it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's like death is on my shoulder like a little advisor, <laughs> and I can't, I, I can't get rid of it. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it makes me really live life with purpose and with appreciation and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I went during the, um, during the millennium, I went to Peru and uh, spent two weeks with shamans and engaged in five um, ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm, wow. And saw ghosts. Um, and that is when I had the realization that people don't die. I mean, that they don't, that something lives on, that their soul or whatever you want to call it yes. lives on. Yeah. That was sort of yes. an amazing amazing um, experience to see these, these people who I had thought at, during the ceremony, um, I walked amongst them because you, you had to raise your hand if you needed to go to the uh, outhouse because there was no way on ayahuasca that you could find it yourself. So I yes. ra- raised my hand and the, there was someone who was supposed to take you. And um, I walked amongst these people on the floor who I thought were people from the uh, native people who we had passed, like when we were traveling, people in this group, in this uh, ranchito, who were in for this experience. We had um, visited other places, and we told people, or the leader of, the owner of this place told people to come if they want to have ayahuasca ceremonies. So I thought that these were people who had come, and um, I was asking them, excuse me, excuse me, as I walked through them. The next day, I found out that they hadn't come. Those were spirits. Wow. Wow. That is really (laughs) interesting. I could talk to you forever about this subject. (laughs) This is really interesting. I mean, it was so real. It wasn't like a question. It was I was saying, excuse me, excuse me, and I was really thinking that these were those people. Oh, I I know what you mean. 
because you were on some level with those people. Now, I, uh, it, this story is in my book, but um, I went on a shamanic journey to find my brother. It's a long story in the book, but mm. it's a very, very interesting story because, um, well, I'll back up and tell you that the reason I wrote the book was because of this brother. And yes. he died on Halloween, just to bring this back oh. to the beginning of the talk. He died on Halloween. And... Um, through a series of events after he died, through dreams, he kept coming to me to tell me he hadn't died. And, you, you know, there was these same recurring dreams, and all of a sudden I realized Mike doesn't know he Mike doesn't know he died. He doesn't know he's dead. Mm. It, it was just such an interesting realization. And so um, one night I sat on my bed and told my brother, I was crying, and I told my brother he had died. And I could feel... As I was telling him that, I said, Mike, you're gone. You died. We buried you. I mean, we burned your body. You're gone. This is why you see me crying all the time, because you're not here on the physical plane anymore. And I told him all this. As I was telling him that, I could feel him. I could feel him there. And I could feel it making sense to him. I could Mm. feel it all. It was just so interesting. So then after I told him that, he never came to me in dreams again. It was it. Mm. So I thought, oh my God, he heard that. So then I have this friend who's trained in um, different types of Native American kind of shamanic practices, and I had her help me find my brother. Mm. And she did. She took me on this shamanic journey, and I can tell you, Carol, I found him. I just, just, you know the experience, what it's like to meet somebody on whatever level that is. I don't know. Some call it astral. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in that. The only thing I can tell you is that we went to some plane where there was my brother, and I got to see him again, and she told me that he was waiting to say goodbye. So I met him on this level. We talked a mile a minute. It was unbelievable. I was just so happy to be with him again. And then she had me lead him into the light. Hmm. And so I did. She, you know, as part of this practice, she had me turn around, lead lead him across this meadow into the light. And then, as I was leading him into the light, because we both saw this big bright light, she said, "Let go of his hand," and I did. And Oh, my God, it was the most incredible experience of my life to, first of all, meet him on that level after he had died, and secondly, to lead him into the light and let him go. Oh, my God. Had you taken anything like ayahuasca, or was this no, just, how did no, you get nope, to that nope. level? I got to it just through. She took me in this little practice. It was she had me do some deep breathing, and um, and then she started leading me down this path. And it could be any path I wanted, you know. And I I picked a path in North Carolina, and I saw the path so vividly. I could feel the cold leaves under my feet, you know. I, I even bent down and felt the leaves, and they're kind of damp. And and so it was kind of a North Carolina path, and um, it was really interesting because at one point walking down this path she said if you see um stairs to the left or right just keep going and i did Mm. see stairs to the left or the right Mm. and she Mm. said just keep going but you'll find this interesting i couldn't i had a hard time keeping going because I, i i could sense that she was way farther down the path so what i had to do when i saw those stairs is i just 
pushed myself to keep going. And I kept going down my path. I kind of ran. I kind of shoved myself away from those stairs and kept going. And, huh. as, and, then, and then as I went down the path, then I found my brother. Well, here's the interesting thing. I'm so glad you know about this because it's really, you know, it's fascinating when you have these kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. The, the next day after I saw my brother and I let him go into the light, I, I cried myself to sleep that night like I've never cried before. It was just really devastating. The next day... I called her, and I asked her, what were those steps? I said, because uh-huh. I had a hard time getting beyond them. And she told me it was the end of the subconscious. She said it, it was the end of the subconscious, and beyond the steps was this other plane where souls that have not crossed over reside. Hmm. And isn't that interesting? And that's where I found my brother. I didn't know any of that. It was a very innocent kind of trip that she took me on, just, just with breathing. It was nothing other than that. It wasn't drugs. She was, in fact, we were both on the phone. She was on the phone, like you and I are. Wow. We were both on the wow. phone, and she took me on this little trip. Yeah, I know it. It was really amazing. Very interesting. <laughs> so I found my brother <laughs> when he went into the light, and then, um, and then again, I didn't see him. I didn't hear from him in dreams or anything for another year. A year passed, and then... I had another dream of my brother. And I call these real dreams because something real happens and you have a real visitation. It's not just the dreams that we normally think of when we fall asleep. But he Mm -hmm. came to me again in this dream. And he gave me one of the really big messages of my life. Um, you You know, as I came face-to-face with different deaths of loved ones, I had very similar experiences like this. Oh, do we have to go? Yeah. <laughs> I was trying that to, music. <laughs> I, well, we'll leave everybody on a cliffhanger, and we will come back after the break. Yes, I wasn't sure if you heard the music. Yes, indeed, we're all okay. dying to know <laughs> what the message was that he had for her. My guest is Marco okay. Lenmark. Her book is called Light in the Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Memoirs of an Undertaker's Daughter. So, of course, you're going to stay tuned. the experts call toll free right now 1-866-472-5787 Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question that's 1-866-472-5787 thank you for calling voiceamerica.com are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times do you want help then contact dr carol lieberman today at www.drcarol.com Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, 
strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm sure you're all as interested in as I am to find out the, the uh, rest of the story. My guest, Margot Lindmark, the author of Light in the Morning, Memoirs of an Undertaker's Daughter, was just about to tell us the message that her brother died, that her brother gave her after he died. Okay, yeah, I didn't mean to leave such a cliffhanger. I was just getting so excited when the music <laughs> came on. When, when, um, so after Mike died, and after he had then, I'd helped him get in, you know, go into the light, and he really was gone then. Um, it was about a year later. He came to me in a dream, and he came. He really did come to me. It wasn't just this illusory dream. And I was so excited to see him in the dream. And I'm like, Mike, when do I get to see you again? Because Mike and I were like best friends. We were brother and sister, but we couldn't have been closer. And so to lose Mike was just absolutely Mm -hmm. devastating. We were really attached to each other. So in the dream, I was saying to him, Mike, when do I get to be with you again? When do I get to be with you again? And he said to me, it's not about that. And I said, what's it about? What do you mean it's not about that? I want to see you again. I want to be with you again. He said, it's about how you are. It's about how you are being in your moments. Hmm. And that was the end of the dream. And that was really interesting to me. I I came out of the dream and I just sat very quietly with that to get what he said because I could feel it so deeply. And what I got was... It's not about who you're with in life. It's about how you are being, how you are behaving with whoever you are with in life. And so to get that message from my brother, who I was very attached to and couldn't wait to be with again, it, it, it changed me. And it changed me in the way that, you know, I'm always attached to to who I'm with. I want to be with them over and over. And I, you know, but what it did is it made me be a better person and be more self-sufficient within myself with whoever I'm with. And so Uh I just give whoever I'm with my all. I I don't, I don't try to try to think about being with somebody else. It just put me in the moment like nothing else has. So every moment I am fully present with whoever I'm with because of that message from my brother. It really changed me because I did yeah. not want to hear that answer. I wanted to hear that I'd see him again next lifetime or whatever, you know. So it really did something well, that to would me. Have been scary those if he words said, from him. That, w- that would have been scary, though, if he had said, oh, <laughs> in about a month, a month and a half. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll be seeing you real soon. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, now, I know in your book you also write about uh, messages that you got from other people who were close to you. Who, who was the next close person who died after your brother? 
Well, it's not really, my book isn't really in chronological order. Um, You know, it's just that as I came face to face with the deaths of many loved ones that were very close to me, I had similar experiences during and after each loss. Every single death shattered my paradigm like like a rock in a windshield and it just left behind really important revelations about life like this one with my brother and with each person I mean they came to me in different ways like with Mike he came to me in dreams Um, some people or messages came right before they died some messages were in the last words they spoke to me and some of them were like I got the message in the face in death. So all of these messages that came through these people came in very different ways, but everyone left a very important message for me about how to live, like my brother's message. Um, my mother, let, so they're not in chronological order to answer your question. Yes, but, okay. Um, yeah, okay, but they were messages well, from my mother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, one was from my mother, and my mother and I had a very, very um, um, uh, cat-and-dog fight relationship. It was very contentious, and um, her message would naturally be about resolving things, and um, the way her message came to me was so clear. You know, you you can tell it kind of it takes a while to tell the story. And so I, I don't want to go into the whole story because we don't have enough time, but I'm happy to come back and go into some of these. But with my mother, it was, it was a story about, I mean, it was a message about resolve. And because I got that message from my mother, who I had a very contentious relationship with, it changed me. And the way it changed me is I have kept every single relationship resolved ever since I got that message mm. from my mother. Mm. And when these messages come, they, they're very, they're cognitive, they're very deep, they, 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 they come to you fully. And so it's not um, some kind of theory or something or intellectual thing, it's an experience that changed me. And mm-hmm. so because of that, I have kept every single relationship in my life resolved. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I will drive to your house at midnight. I will um, stay, I will leave parties. I will, I, will, I will write you a letter and we'll talk or whatever. I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that when, when we are done, that we are clear. And if, the, mm. if I've created some misunderstanding, I'll call somebody immediately and go through it so that we have it resolved. And huh. so that was a huge, huge thing to get from my mother. Um, so, so these are the type of lessons <laughs> that I got from people, and it's the kind of messages I got. And it, I decided to share it in a book because I really felt it was important. It, enough people that have heard the stories have told me, you've got to write this in a book. And so mm-hmm. finally, when my brother died, I decided, when my brother died, my paradigm just crashed so much that, because I thought I had a handle on life and death, you know, from Ryan, you know, when he died, that when my brother died, I thought I had a handle on it. But when he died, when, when Mike died, it just, it destroyed my paradigm so much that I thought whatever comes out of this will be my living memorial to my brother. And uh-huh. then I, I just had to, so, you know, it made me question all my answers because my question was, what if I don't ever see him again? What if I never see my brother again? Uh-huh. I couldn't live with it. And I thought, oh, I had to just go deep and kind of go through the exploration of life and death all over again and, and 
I thought whatever comes out of that will be my living memorial, and that was my book. <laughs> that's why I wrote it. Well, that's amazing. Um, t- yeah. tell, I want to make sure that we also hear about, you know, what your own path was, um, like after college. What did you major in in college? Well, it's interesting. I majored in psychology, and uh-huh. I went to my first le- and then I ch- okay. I went to my first lecture, and um, the professor got up there, and the first thing he wrote on the board was that man only uses five percent of his potential. And hmm. so, you know, I'm in this big classroom, and I raise my hand, and I go, "Where's the rest? Yeah. <laughs> if you're only using five percent, where's the rest?" And he looked at me like I had. 10 heads, and he kept going on with his lecture, and I went, huh. wait a minute, if we're only using 5% of our potential, where's the rest, and how do we get there? Yeah. And he wouldn't answer my question, so you know what? I walked out of the psychology room and um, dropped psychology, and I went into journalism, and I thought, psychology doesn't have the answers I want, and so I decided to major in um, journalism, because I thought, if I ever find the answers, I'll write about them. So I actually got a a degree in journalism instead of psychology in college. Well, that that turned out to be useful, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as far as writing the book. (laughs) And so, okay, but like I I know I read in your bio about you traveling around the world and teaching people meditation and so on. So how do we get to there? Yeah, so uh, after I graduated from college, I had started uh, Transcendental Meditation, and when I graduated from college, I decided to teach meditation. I think um, you know, my father was worried about how I'm going to make a living, but he certainly supported that because um, he was a deeply spiritual man. And um, so, yeah, I, went, I, I became a teacher of Transcendental Meditation, and then I went around the world teaching TM. I taught in Egypt and India and Czechoslovakia and uh, when it was still one country. <laughs> um, and then I came back to the U.S. and taught in major corporations here. I taught in McDonnell Douglas and uh, General Motors and um, some small car, you know, car dealerships and, and things like that. So then I became a TM, you know, then I was a TM teacher for all those years. And, and then um, I went to Palm Beach and started an Ayurveda health center, and that's how I met Deepak Chopra. Um, and then, and then, then, um, I'm trying to think back. So then, then I ended up in, um, North Carolina where I became a realtor. I, I decided I had to make some money. So then I became, I, I became a real estate broker and I've been teaching, real, I, I've been, um, selling real estate in North Carolina ever since. Now that's, <laughs> that's so you got grounded, so to speak. <laughs> I got I mean, grounded, you know, ground, yeah. ground, not grounded in terms of punish, but I mean grounded in terms of, you know, um, uh, putting, getting your feet on the ground. But so um, what was the Ayurvedic um, spa or center like? Yeah, um, I was married at the time, and my husband and I started this Ayurveda Health Center. Ayurveda is the oldest system of traditional medicine in the world, and it uses um, herbs and different kinds of um, uh, detoxification techniques to really clean out the system, to really get your your body um, strong and healthy and get it on the right diet and with the right herbs and the right supplements that you need. Um, the Ayurveda Health Center is generally run by um, um, a, an Indian doctor called a Vaija, 
and they take your pulse and they can determine your body type and based upon your body type, they will recommend a diet that's good for you um, and then put you through this purification treatments so that you can really detox and really get the good food in you after the detox and get healthy again. So I did that for about three years and um, Deepak Chopra kept, you know, he we'd invite him down to our health center in Palm Beach every year and he would do big lectures and um, I got to know him pretty well during that time. Huh. And, but what did yeah, you... Yeah, he was popular. Um, <laughs> did you do Transcendental Meditation at the center? I mean, I'm wondering yes. what you uh-huh. specifically... Uh huh. I, I well, I actually ran the center. Um, you know, we 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 started the center and ran it and operated it. Did the marketing. We did everything. My husband and I. And I also t- uh, taught transcendental meditation. And then I did the patient education. After they'd see the doctor, I'd explain to the patient mm. all these terms and what it meant and what the purification would be. And and then our staff would get them set up on the treatments. So it's really uh-huh. interesting to be in Palm Beach with it with a with a clinic like that <laughs> because people yeah. in Palm Beach, they're there, you know, to do their fundraisers and to go out and party every night. And um, so it was, <laughs> it was an interesting mix. <laughs> yeah. So that wasn't exactly the diet that the, uh, that was recommended. Exactly. For them. <laughs> well, no, exactly. Me, I mean, but it's, what's so interesting though, is between the transcendental meditation and the Ayurvedic center and all that, it was all very uh, focused on bringing out life, you know, um, and yes. I obviously, um, obviously a reaction to, a positive reaction to all that you had been through in your life uh, before then, right. between, between right. growing up in the funeral home and then the various people dying and leaving you messages. Um, right. We're running out of time. I want to make sure that you give people, tell people where they can buy your book. Okay. They can buy it on Amazon. It's called Light in the Morning, Memoirs of an Undertaker's Daughter. Apparently, there's two light in the mornings, and so make sure it's the memoirs of an undertaker's daughter. They can get it on Amazon, and um, I also have a website, which is www.lightinthemorning.com. No HTTP. <laughs> and um, also, it's, and then, um, I want to remind people, it, it's light in the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G.com. Yes. That kind of morning. Right. Yep. Yes. All right. Yes. Well, thank you so and, much. This has been delightful. And um, Oh, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> and I really wish you lots of success, continued success. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on your show, and it, it's, it's really been a fun interaction with you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 